I was astonished that there was poverty in London when I first came here. That was British Cypriot economist Christopher Pissarides. You're listening to Nobel Prize Conversations. Britain was the colonial country. London was the capital. It was a great city. How could there be poverty? And then, and then you see unemployment and you say, how could there be people who want jobs and don't have them? And I thought, why? And, and then you look at uh, economic explanations and they were not there. And I was always interested in big problems. I said, big problem, let's try and solve it. Let's try and think of a solution. You just heard economic science laureate Christopher Pissarides describing the beginnings of his work on the causes of unemployment. This work eventually led to the award of the 2010 Prize in Economic Sciences, together with Peter Diamond and Dale Mortensen. Unemployment is one of those types of big problems, as he just mentioned, that he's always liked to think about. And together with his co-laureates, Pissarides has created new tools for analyzing the labor market and the ways that specific policies can influence it. I'm Fanny Harjestam, one of the producers of Nobel Prize Conversations. This episode was recorded as Europe headed into the second wave of the coronavirus crisis, a time when many people have already lost their jobs or are facing the prospect of unemployment. The host for the Nobel Prize Conversations podcast is Adam Smith. Adam is the chief scientific officer of Nobel Media, an outreach arm of the Nobel Prize. This podcast series is brought to you with the support of the Riksbank, Sweden's central bank. So here is our conversation with Christopher Pissarides, where we'll cover how COVID-19 might affect the future of work, examine moral dilemmas and see how one Monday morning in 1974 changed the course of his life. But let's start from the beginning, in Cyprus's capital city, Nicosia, back in the 1950s. What was it like for you as a, um, a young child growing up in Nicosia? It was a comfortable life, I, sh- I should say. You know, my father started his own business. He came from a very poor family. From the village, he moved to, a, to town to work. And he was successful to have a comfortable home, a good neighborhood. At that time, there was no question of better schools, there some schools better than others. We all went to the local state schools, so you met everyone, basically, from your neighborhood. And, and, and I had many friends, and, and it was all very, very nice in a way, you know, nice upbringing. But uh, politics and political trouble, first with British, then with Turkish Cypriots, then with Turkey, started when I was seven. So it's very strong in my memory. And, and I missed um, months of school and one year, almost the entire year of, of elementary school because literally I was in elementary school for five years. I didn't do the first year. I was pushed immediately to the second because they thought I would be bored in the first year. And... Um, those five years were exactly the five years of the Eoka movement. The Eoka was an underground nationalist movement of Greek Cypriots whose armed struggle started in the mid-50s. Its goal was to end British colonial rule in Cyprus and to be united with Greece. The latter never happened, but in 1960 Cyprus gained its independence from the United Kingdom. 
you know, we would hear about bombs. The British army would come and close the school down. Uh, they would come and, uh, you know, they, they had strong suspicion that uh, uh, what they were calling terrorists, what we were calling uh, liberation fight, uh, fighters were hiding the school, which wasn't true, by the way. I mean, obviously, Greek schools, they were a kind of um, hub of, um, of nationalism, if you like, but ne never involved in any direct uh, action. It was more like teaching as of the glorious history of Greece. They had to fight for its independence. As it disrupted your education, were you basically feeling this is something I support, this is something I want to succeed? Yes, of course, yeah. The whole of the Greek population, actually, except for those, the informers who just gave in to the money offers from the British administration to give information for a free house and a new name in London. A few of them took it up, but those were looked down terribly. You know, they, they were the worst of all the species in Cyprus. No, no we, we, we did feel very strongly, and I did have cousins in their 20s who were involved more directly. I didn't know very much, but I remember my parents saying, you know, don't say anything about such and such a cousin yeah. what's because you never know, you know, that kind of thing. He had much more widespread support than um, Britain ever admitted in public. It was basically the whole population that was there. And, and when they were closing down our schools, when they had a Greek flag on it, uh, we actually supported the Greek flag there, not only because we were missing school, but we were saying it's a Greek school, it has to have a Greek flag. We fly the Union Jack on our Greek school, you know. <laughs> Just, it, it was just not possible to comprehend that kind of idea, you know. And now it seems so odd that, that it could be otherwise, but there you go. But you were a good student. You worked hard. Were you tempted to follow the path of your glamorous cousins and join the movement yourself? No, not really. I was, I, I was too young. I mean, like, it, it all ended when I was 12. I mean, in a way, it's the movement for independence against the British ended when I was 12, and the... Far worse troubles even with the Turks started when I was too old to get involved. <laughs> there was a brief gap in the, between the two, and that was the time that I, I, I sort of went through the age where I would have been drafted immediately. It's interesting, the disruption to your schooling has a strange parallel with what the majority of students around the world are facing now, it seems, these interruptions. But you coped fine. You, you managed to keep going. Well, actually, it's, it, it's quite... Um, surprising or, or maybe not how how it affected me now because I mean some people you know some parents are saying disaster they're not going to school and all that in fact I, I mean I do have a small child in school actually myself and I was even saying to my wife don't worry you know these school years are not that important it provided you offer something at home you know you don't sit in front of the television all day at home but if you talk to them you know we have the ability you know tell stories about history, do some maths together. Missing the school as such is not a problem other than the social mixing with other boys and girls of, of, of his age. Now, in my time, that, uh, if anything, was more social, not being a school guy in school because we're out in the neighborhood, we were running around, I had lots of friends, lots of cousins and so on of my age. For him, for children here during this time, that, that's what they are missing. And in fact, after the first uh, month or so, he would say, oh, I wish school would open. I'm missing my friends. And when it opened a couple of weeks ago, he would say, oh, you can see he's excited. He gets up in the morning. Yes, school today. <laughs> and then he gets back and he says, 
I wish studying was online though, and we just went to school to meet a friend. But as I say, I don't, I don't think it's that important missing school there. But but of course, it, it's where you see the inequalities as well, which is a very big risk in that. Um, some households are fortunate, fortunate enough to be able to provide uh, a good substitute at home, but many others are not. And then their gap opens up. Yeah, isn't it interesting that sort of distance learning has always been seen perhaps as a way of combating inequality in, in resources, and yet now we are suddenly exposed to it to such a degree, we're seeing that it also exposes new inequalities that we hadn't thought about before. That's exactly right, and I was uh, discussing online about that because I was involved in research on the platform economy and online learning and uh, in, in relation to China, actually, and the um, Alibaba platform, which is, has reached uh, all parts in China. And they were saying how inclusive it is, what a wonderful new medium it is, because now you can teach people in villages where they couldn't go to school and everything, and, and it's a great equalizing force. And then suddenly we see now that... Um, when there is no school, it leads to more inequalities. It is turning into a huge experiment in how to, how to do this right. Well, it's one of those experiments that the economists love, in fact. It's, it's what they call natural experiments. Some exogenous event forces you to change normal course, and then you do a panel study, you follow up the subjects up to uh, retirement, up to old age, and, and you see what impact that disruption had. I mean, there are a few incidents from the past like that. I expect this one, we're just researching economics and the economics of education will carry on and on for decades. Um, it's only because we didn't have these statistical means and surveys in Cyprus at the time in the 1950s. Otherwise, it was another natural experiment that we missed a whole year of school just because there was a Greek flag on the school flagpole instead of a British one. And uh, trace us through and see what it did to our education and our cognitive abilities. But um, the, the data are not there. I don't. I don't know if there are any hidden data somewhere about whether you could trace people my age now. What are they doing? You know, compared with um, people five or ten years younger than us that didn't have the disruption, older than us that didn't have the disruption, and, and younger, I guess. So we've got you through high school, and you you graduate easily and well, and then you make the difficult decision to go abroad to the UK. At that time, it wasn't that difficult, actually, because there was no university in Cyprus. It was only, I finished high school about five years after the independence and two years after uh, a second set of troubles, as we were saying, against the, uh, between Greeks and Turks, and, and that involved much more shooting, much more closer to home. Because at that point, it was an official Cyprus police, which was well armed, and, and, and army. And without a university there, without high school, uh, without anything beyond high school, uh, parents who could afford it would send their children either to Greece or to Britain because of the colonial connection, uh, without even a, a second thought. And... Um, Britain was always regarded as a better place for education. My father, who came from the village and left school at 10, was telling me that, uh, uh, that all you need to do is to learn English fluently and then you can get any job you want. You know, it's what you're missing, basically, because you get a word of English. 
during colonial times, he was feeling this deficiency that he, that he would stop him at short distances that he wasn't able to communicate with the authorities. And so I came, I came to London to study rather than Athens, especially for economics or accounting. I mean, he wanted me to be an accountant. I didn't want to become an accountant. So I said, I'll do economics. And then at the end of the degree, I'll see if I can change my mind. I want to go into accountancy. And there's no question that if you want to be an accountant in Cyprus, you have to study in England because the big operators there are the big four and our law and our accounting practices are still entirely the British, the English ones, I should say. So, so when you left to come to university in the UK, did, did you at that time think that you might in the end become part of the great Greek diaspora or were you intending very much to just come and study and go home? No, never. I was intending to study and go home and I was intending to get a degree very quickly and go home. But then I, I got interested in academic studies. So I thought, oh, let's stay and do the MSc. And then, oh, you know, PhD is interesting too. And but um, I had, um, I mean, to show how much I, st- I was still intending to go back home, when I finished my undergraduate, I, I applied to the U.S. just because um, my then professors were saying, you know, PhD in a top American university is much better and you can make it. Why don't you apply? And I applied and I got an offer from Harvard. But Harvard said our PhDs are remaining for four years, whereas... Um, I didn't feel like going to the States for four years after spending six years in Britain by that time. And then talking to my professors that we had very close connections with the LSE. I was at Essex, University of Essex. And one of my professors said, well, you know, if you work very hard at the LSE, you can do it in two years. That's a requirement. And I said, oh, that's where I'm going. <laughs> and I finished in two years, actually, the PhD. Wow. And then I was going to go home, but then the Turkish invasion took place at home. so. Would you mind telling the story of just how you found yourself in a strange situation when the, the events escalated very rapidly in Cyprus with the invasion by the Greek dictatorship followed immediately by the Turkish invasion? I was intending to stay in, in Britain for a, a postdoc or something. It was like adding a little bit at a time in, in what I was doing especially because my PhD was considered to be successful by my professor in Roland, and they said, you know, you have to write it up for publication. And, and again, they advised me, actually, I now think not, not very good advice to bring it out as a book because it was a complete piece of work. So I started writing it as, as, as a book. And I wanted to stay here, but then at the same time, I didn't want to live in, in Britain just writing a book. I had enough. I wanted to go and live uh, at home in Nicosia. And I did go back and there was a good job at the, in the research department of the, back, of the central bank. And I went back and got the job and started mainly writing a book, working, doing the minimum I had to do in the research department of the central bank. And most of the time writing my book. And um, that was in February, 1974. Uh, the political situation was very bad. And, and then in July, just one day before the military coup by Greece. The military coup was something like 8.30 in the morning on a Monday. The Monday morning that Christopher Pissaridis is referring to was the 15th of July, 1974. The military from mainland Greece 
in cooperation with the nationalist movement of Greek Cypriots, ousted President Makarios in a military coup. Shortly after that, mainland Turkey sent their forces to Cyprus, saying the Turkish minority needed protection. Violence erupted between the two sides, and from that year and on, up to the present, Cyprus remains in practice a divided island between the Turkish Cypriot side in the north and the Greek Cypriot side in the south. And then I took what turned out to be the last flight out of Nicosia Airport at nine the previous night to go to Athens, where I had a girlfriend that uh, I wanted to marry. <laughs> So I said to her, come to Cyprus, I'm not going to the Greece and the dictators. She said, okay, I'll come to Cyprus, but I'm not coming on my own, come to get me. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I went to Athens and then I remember that evening saying the biggest risk in Cyprus is the, the Greek military and the Turkish military just intervening. When Greece had the military coup in Cyprus, I was in Athens. Uh, we didn't know what to do. We were stuck there. I was planning to return within three or four days. But then I was say phone call to the um, parents of my um, then uh, girlfriend, fiancé, I should say, from someone in the army. And then he said to them, how are you getting on with Greece uh, in uh, Athens as well? And, and they were saying, oh, very nice, you know, yes, yeah. And he said, oh, why don't you uh, keep them a little bit longer in Athens? Maybe ask them to go and visit their friends in London you know, to uh, get to know get to know both of them more, you know, familiarize with friends, family. There's no great hurry to go back to Cyprus. <laughs> so that was the signal. Next day, we bought tickets and came to London. And here I still am. <laughs> <laughs> Extraordinary to be, to just be propelled by the events of history to make a, to make a decision like that, to, to find yourself, you know, not really in control. And then he pitched back. Actually, that's one big thing that, that you learn, that there are some things that you're just not in control. And um, of course, there's a big moral dilemma on how you behave. You know, are you, are you the hero who goes and says, I'll do my bit? So often your bit leads to nowhere, but except for, for your mind and attitude of others, or you know, how heroic and all that, or you think I can offer a lot more if I conform within the circumstances, although it's something that morally I might object to, like some of the military telling you, basically go to England hmm. and, and wait there, you know, because you knew I had strong connections at the universities and all that. And instead you do that, and what do you say? No, I'm going to fight, you know, or I better follow the advice of someone who's you know, the enormous armies <laughs> coming from all directions. And uh, that's what I did. I, I came to England and there were two, two temporary jobs from people who were not leaving. They were looking for replacement uh, staff at that time. One was at the University of Reading, the other at uh, Southampton University. And, and I got them both. And I selected to go to Southampton. And I stayed there for two years, one and a half years, in fact, before going back to the LSE on a regular position. My LSE career started, in fact, it's funny how, you know, you say you have to decide how you're going to contribute because in a way, you know, you could have intervened more directly in what was happening in Cyprus then. And, but now you find yourself as chairman of the Committee of Experts for the long-term growth strategy for Greece. Now, Greece and Cyprus are very different places, of course. There, there's a connection. And obviously, had you decided to contribute differently at that point, you wouldn't be in this position of contributing 
So importantly, at this point, you never know. And of course, one of the things that make me feel um, very proud of the fact that I was directly involved in the, um, in the committee that set up the University of Cyprus. Starting in 1988, I was in charge of the economics department. It's a very successful department. I'm still there. I still have very close connections with them. And in fact, I have a position. And I'm very proud of that, that I contributed to um, establishing the first University of Cyprus and establishing a very successful model for Cyprus. Then I was on the um, Committee of Economic Experts during the financial crisis in Cyprus in 2012, where again, I was there for three years when the Troika was still coming to Cyprus and we gave very good uh, feedback to Troika. I got on very well with them and we tried to influence them in the direction that we thought would be best for Cyprus. And now uh, advising the Prime Minister and the government of Greece directly about the um, recovery program following uh, COVID and the uh, financial aid they're getting from the European Union. So those things I would do very willingly and, and all of them entirely voluntarily, of course. I mean, I do feel very uh, strong about that. I should help in the direction that I can. You know, there are lots of smaller things. And of course, they've shown the, their appreciation as well in that, uh, at least in Cyprus, put every honor that could be given Cypriot. It's not that I came here and locked myself in my ivory tower and said, I don't want to know what's going on there. Enough is enough. It is interesting that you sort of, to a certain extent, I suppose, have to wrestle with that history and that question and what other people did. You know, if you come from a state where nothing like this happens, you make a decision to go into academia and that's straightforward. You don't have to think, should I have fought? It makes you think more deeply, I suppose, about your choices in life, which is good. It also makes you think in a broader sense about uh, these things, you know, because, you know, if you take... uh, you know, you you take war. You know, I'm, I mean, I, I am very, very anti-war. I, I think it's silly. If you are in a small nation, you know, there was Cyprus at the time, half a million people, and uh, not armed at all. You know, just the, you, know, you have a, a kind of shooting rifles where you go to shoot. Uh, uh, you know, shooting on the mountains is a sport, and then you take it against the second biggest army of NATO. And they were ordering young men, you know, go and stop those tanks, you know, stop that, those planes landing, and, or stop those frigates coming to, to, to uh, land soldiers on your coastline. And, and they had to go because it was an order from their superiors. And they all died. They are all, they're all gone. You know, you see a little boat coming back there. Of course, you know, they just throw a shot at it and, and, and it sinks. They, they either died or they are still missing persons. We are still going on and on about missing persons and where are they? But So then it, it opens up that whole moral issue. You know, what do you do you know, if you can avoid it? Do you try and escape and avoid it because it, it's such a hopeless situation or, or do you obey your orders and, and you go and do it and, and the chances are that you never come back at it's a terrible choice, you know, to, to have to make, and it's a, a terrible thought, but, but it does make you think like that. At LSE, you discovered um, 
your passion for unemployment, if you like. <laughs> um, wh why did that become the subject that you really wanted to work on? Part of the answer is that I'm really a child of the 60s. <laughs> In the 60s, it was all you know, the new London, swing London, everyone is good. There shouldn't be poverty. You know, we're growing, we're rich. I was astonished that there, were, that there was poverty in London when I first came here. Britain was the colonial country. London was the capital. It was a great city. How could there be poverty? And then, and then you see unemployment and you say, how could there be people who want jobs and don't have them? And not only that, during my studies, the big problem was generally considered to be unemployment because there was a great recession in the 1930s when unemployment was very high. Then, then Keynesian came and I think it was Churchill who made the famous statement, we're all Keynesians now, which means that we discovered how to deal with unemployment. Unemployment went down to 2%, 1950s, 1960s, and then late 60s, early 70s, it jumped up to 4, 5, 8, 10. <laughs> and I thought, why? And then you look at economic explanations, and they were not there. And I was always interested in big problems. You know, I said, big problem, let's try and solve it. Let's try and think of a solution within this uh, framework of techniques that I learned. You know, there's this technology that tells me that you can understand the economy by doing it. Well, unemployment is part of the economy, so how do we understand it? And that's how I got into it. And, and it's a genuine caring about poverty, unemployed people without work and all that. It's one of my big disappointments, actually, now I have to say, I have to throw, throw in this remark as part of the, um, both the Cyprus um, Council that dealt with the crisis in, when we had the haircut just after the debt crisis and now in Greece, because both times it was the center-right government was in charge and asked me to help. And I said, yes, I'm completely apolitical. I would help anyone if I feel I can help when it comes to economics. And the opposition was in both cases a left-wing opposition. Whatever suggestion I would make without looking at it seriously, they would say, oh, the neoliberal right-wing Pisaridis who doesn't care about poverty, he just wants to maximize the profits of companies and, and all that. And it, it's such complete nonsense. It, there is this lack of, of, of understanding that, um, you know, if you say which I said many times because I believe strongly that the, the best way to help the poor is to create jobs. And these companies will create jobs. And creating a job requires investment. So step number one to help unemployment is make sure that the investment environment is as favorable as possible to a company to invest and open jobs. Now, once you say that, they say, Oh, you know, unemployment is 8%, 10%, and all he's telling us is that you should help companies invest more and make more profit. What you should do is to help, is, is to give money to the unemployed, get them out of poverty, open jobs. Well, okay, give some money in the meantime, but think of a long-term solution. Long-term solution is to, is to get a job. And it's not the government who's going to open the jobs to give them, or they themselves, as self-employed, it's big companies that open jobs. Your report for the Greek government is about to come out this month, I think, the final report. It's supposed to be this month. It might be slightly delayed, but there will be one. There will be a final version. That's a country where they're against a backdrop of very 
bad unemployment figures and incredible youth unemployment currently following the long-lasting crisis. They've now got effects of COVID. So what are you suggesting as the solution for Greece? Number one solution, number one objective actually, is, is what I just mentioned. They have to get more investment. Greece has the lowest investment rate in the whole of the European Union. It's about 10 to 12 percent of GDP. 10 to 12 percent is, is just enough maybe to replace what you depreciate during production. You cannot get anything new and therefore you cannot create any new jobs if you keep going like that. So, so your objective to tackle all this is how to get more unemployment into the country. Then we know that there isn't much money in the country because banks have become dysfunctional for non-performing loans. Uh, there is some, you know, there are some uh, bank deposits, but not, not many, not enough. And therefore, you have to attract, attract investments from outside. How do you attract investments from outside? By giving them a favorable investment environment. You know, taxation incentives that work in the direction of, of, of investment, a, uh, legal procedures that make sure that uh, their intellectual property rights will be supported, quick decisions, uh, ownership, rights throughout. If you buy an alien company, you'll be able to control the company immediately. You're not going to have endless negotiations in the courts about what powers you have. Can you change this? Can you change that? All this, and this includes, you know, quick decisions in the public sector. So if you start from the objective that I want to increase investment, you, you get onto public sector reform, judiciary reform, bank reform, <laughs> Uh, taxation reform, all these things together. My wife is half Greek. So we have experience of, for instance, the judicial system in Greece and the tax system and the public sector system. And reform is, is needed, but hard. Boy, do you have a magic suggestion for how to achieve reform against, again, against the backdrop of many people knowing that it's needed, but it being hard to achieve? I mean, this political will, there's no doubt about that. We are, we are independent and we're a committee of experts. So we say what we think means reform. And our, our first objective is to persuade the government, which, fingers crossed, looks uh, strong compared with Greek government generally, that they have to give it priority. Then we've been talking to a lot of um, legal officers, people, professors of law, you, know, you say you experienced it. We talked to companies that experienced the, these problems with the legal system, and we could see where the problems were. And we are making recommendations on that on that basis that delays need to be tackled. Maybe set up some special courts that will deal very quickly with the backlog, so that we could start remove some layers of the legislation when new legislation comes in. Repeal the previous one. All those things put together. It sounds like a, a very pragmatic suggestion. I've heard it said that you want to, that your committee has suggested that Greece should become the California of Europe. I don't know how that came out. In no, I said in, in my first meeting with Mitsotakis, I said to him almost, almost casually as part of the conversation, but it was being recorded on journalists around. I was saying, really looking at Greece and the education of the Greek uh, population where it is within the European Union. I said to me, there is no reason why it shouldn't be the Netherlands of the South, I said. Works. And, but then during our deliberations, we, we said, you know, because of the climate of Greece and its natural beauties, and 
I said as part of the committee, maybe, maybe there were some other members, maybe some of them were there, and I was saying there's no reason why Greece shouldn't be the Florida of Europe, you know, like rich Germans come and retire in Greece and spend lots of money. Then one of the other committee members said, why Florida, California of Europe, <laughs> Florida? And then suddenly, the next day, the Pissarides committee wants to make us California of Europe. <laughs> That's how it came about. <laughs> nothing, nothing more than that. I wanted to move to Greece already, but now, as a combination <laughs> of the Netherlands, Florida, and California, I'm counting in. That's what it would be. Yeah. You are co-chairing this new institute in London called the Institute for the Future of Work. And the current pandemic is accelerating everybody's thinking about the future of work, which was it was needed anyway. Things are changing rapidly and technology is disrupting everybody's lives and helping. What's the main focus of the way that you look at the future of work? A lot of my recent academic work is focused on the future of work generally, you know, throughout the industrialized world and the non-industrialized. And... Um, my belief after studying both data and thinking of people and all that is that um, there's a section of the economy that is getting automated and manufacturing is the primary one, but lots of services as well, you know, banking, for example. But there is another section of the economy, which is um, completely based on uh, person-to-person contact. The hospitality industries, I mean, the, the health industry is the main one. Pre-COVID, I'm talking about the hospitality industry, domestic services of all kinds, people taking more leisure, you know, leisure activities. So I thought, I always, I, I believe very strongly that the big challenge we are facing now is not how to fight technology, embrace technology because it increases your productivity, but the challenge is how do you make the transition of workers from jobs that uh, they lose out because of automation into these service jobs where you service people directly that cannot be automated. And that includes education from schools that you have to teach these techniques. It includes training programs that are needed, the transition programs. So the, the challenge I always thought that we had to face was workers in transition. How do we manage the transition of workers? So we set up the Institute for the Future of Work where this was the focus that we had. How do we create good jobs in the sectors that are creating those jobs to help the people who are losing their jobs from elsewhere have a good income, a respectable job that they like with good promotion prospects, good training programs available? And it's not easy because a lot of the new jobs being created are in the gig economy. So we've been working well with that. So what is now happening, which is the, those very jobs that you identified as being the ones that would not be so touched by technology are the ones that are absolutely in crisis now because they're the ones that require person-to-person contact, which is not possible. Well, right now, of course, that, that challenge, if we thought it was difficult, now it's difficult times 10 because the, the, the very jobs that cannot be automated are the ones that COVID has attacked. Um, so how do you deal with that? You know, education, for example, it's done online, it's done as, as self-help. Hospitality has died, you know, like tourism has gone. The 
tourist centers like Greece and Cyprus had an 80% reduction in their tourist uh, trade this, this summer. I mean, quite honestly, I, I don't think there is a solution whilst we don't know how to deal with COVID, whilst there's no vaccine available and, and we're still watching every night in the news on you know, how many new infections have there been and should we have more lockout, lockdown. Uh, you know, sit back, hope for the best that the medics will come up uh, with a vaccine. Where it does open up, though, big questions is what happens after that. Are we going to be affected so much by this pandemic that um, we're going to uh, set up new ways of functioning, more people working from home, much more emphasis on the environment, all that, which, is, which of course is a very labor-intensive, it's a very, very labor-intensive sector? I think the answer is yes. So we should be looking in that direction now. It's been a huge pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much indeed, Chris. Thank you. Thank you very much. And in the next little while, let's hope that um, things look a bit brighter soon. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. Right. Bye. Bye. You have just heard Nobel Prize Conversations, a podcast series with Adam Smith by Phil Tinterland for Nobel Media. The producer of this episode was me, Fanny Harjestam. Music by Epidemic Sound. This was the 10th and last episode of Season 1 of Nobel Prize Conversations. Thank you for listening. And there is good news. We will be back with Season 2 already later this year with our podcast host, Adam Smith, where we'll widen our perspectives, also outside economic sciences, and meet new laureates in different Nobel categories. In the meantime, make sure to join in on the 2020 Nobel Prize announcements from the 5th to the 12th of October on nobelprize.org and our other digital channels. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.